Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the news back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 1st. Happy New Year. Today, our critics' most memorable book of 2018. And in an era of so much disagreement, conversations with Americans about what unites us. When it comes to revisiting all the books that he's read in a year, post-book critic Carlos Lozada does everything he can to avoid making a best-of list. They're a little bit stressful for me. That's why he does something different. Instead of focusing on the best books of 2018, Carlos looks at the most memorable books of the year, good or bad. So we asked him why. So what you end up publishing at the end of each year is not what are the best books, but what are the most memorable books, which I feel like really says something when you're a person who is reading more than 60 books per year and like just to have some of those stick out in your memory means that they had to rise above dozens of other books. How do you determine what is most memorable? In part, I try to think about which books do I even recall having read because sometimes I just forget like, oh, yeah, I did read that book. And, you know, I actually had some real thoughts on it. And so I think about the books first that just stood out for me for whatever reason, whether because I love them, whether because there was one moment in the book that I always remember, whether because the book just annoyed me to no end, but annoyed me in a way that is interesting. Like, oh, yeah, God, I really – that one was terrific because of this or because of that or, God, I couldn't stand this book because of – whatever reason, the voice of the writer or a certain anecdote or something like that. But I feel that at the end of the year, yes, these books, you know, may be the ones that I recall years from now, but you can only really see that with time. So when you were looking back on this year's list of books, Mm -hmm. The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu stuck out to you. Why did you pick that one? I really felt like I got to know the author. He is a young guy who finished his college here in Washington, D.C. He went to American University and had studied the border and immigration from an academic point of view. And so he just wanted to see it for himself. So he'd grown up in Arizona with his mom and he becomes a border patrol agent just because he goes to a job fair at AU and DHS was there with a booth or something. And what stuck out for me from this book is just the conversations that he has, the conversations he has with some of the other people that he's in training with to become an agent, the conversations with the migrants, the crossers, people coming across the border, and the recurring conversations with his mother. His mother discouraged him from taking the job. She said, be careful. You'll become part of this system. The soul can buckle in a job like that. I always remember that line, the soul can buckle. And his did. It just seemed like an incredibly honest book. He does some things that he's really not proud of as a, as a Border Patrol agent. Like what? You know, when they find stashes of supplies that migrants are leaving along the way, they ransack those supplies, they slash the water bottles, and the whole idea is to discourage people from coming. If you yes. make it so hard that it's impossible to cross the border, then people won't try it anymore. But at the same time, he finds himself giving advice to people. You know, don't come in the summer, he tells these two teenage boys who had tried to come with their uncle and their uncle died en route. Don't take these kinds of pills that the coyotes give you because you'll get dehydrated. 
he's trying to help people at the same time that he's enforcing these rules and assignments that he has. And it just really kind of messes with him. He has recurring nightmares. He eventually leaves after four years. He feels he's still part of this thing that crushes. That's another line that I remember. I, you know, I think I'm still part of this thing that crushes. So I like just his story very much. But at the same time, you read a book like this and you think that his story, his challenges, his quandaries, his dilemmas are really the same dilemmas that the nation is facing when it's trying to figure out what, what is a lawful and humane immigration policy today. Thank you so much, Carlos. Thank you. There were some other books that stuck out for Carlos last year for different reasons. Most sycophantic, most self-involved, most ominous. You can check them all out at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. You know, I always feel more American on New Year's. You watch the ball drop in New York City, and and you look out in the crowd, and there's people of all different races. They're high-fiving, and they're hugging, and they're they're having a good time together. Everybody's singing. That's what America is is like. Can you talk a little bit? Hello. Yeah, I could talk a little bit. Just don't put your hands up on the microphone. Can you hear me fine? Test, test, one, two, three. Whenever you're ready. All right. (laughs) I live in Kotzebue, Alaska. I live in Maui. I live in Haiku. And I live in Tupelo, Mississippi. Here in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Here in Sanford, Maine. Bishopville, South Carolina. And I am from Kansas City, Kansas. Third generation here in the nation's capital, uh, which we have the whole world visit here. In early 2018, a team of post-journalists used census data to assemble a group of Americans that most closely resembles the overall U.S. population in terms of gender, race, age, and class. All in all, they had 102 conversations, two in each of the 50 states and Washington, D.C. They asked people questions like, what beliefs do we hold about America? What does it mean to be American? And in a time of divisive politics, what unites us as Americans? So many different things that unite us. Baseball, hot dogs. (laughs) Everything that has happened, especially with the hurricane, seeing everyone in the country come together and help everybody out, that couldn't make me feel even more proud. We are America. Nothing stands Americans down. People come together and try to fight for what's right, even if it's for women's rights, health care bills, Black Lives Matter, the gun laws, and they're realizing everybody's not that different. You know what defines a country? You know, is, is it the borders, you know, language and culture? You know, and like we have a multitude of all those things. Our heart and soul is in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Prayer for me is a, is a, is a big value. For me, being an American is one of, one of service to being a member of the military. I've been in for nearly 16 years. America is the only one of the civilized countries where you have to worry about getting shot all the time. You know, uh, you can walk down the street in Japan and not worry about that sort of thing. Being American is just safe. 
There are things about America that I'm proud of. Yes, yes, baby. We are America and we can do anything. And there are things that I'm ashamed of. Being an American is... Being American is just... Being an American is... Being an American means to understand all the diversity we have here. Folks will oftentimes say, well, what do you mean? How, how can you be against immigration? You're, but you're an immigrant yourself. As if somehow being an immigrant somehow displaces me from looking at what's good for America. Born in the USA. Bruce Springsteen. Born in the USA. <laughs> I came over from Hong Kong back in 1961 with my parents. My father supported himself to uh, working at the various Chinese restaurant in the Milwaukee area and eventually got his electrical engineering degree. You had a son. What's his name? Jonathan. He is a funny kid. He... Monetary value is not a big deal to him. He's a, more of a historian. He's a Civil War reenactor. But I don't think he wanted to uh, take over the restaurant, per se. He wanted his weekend off to go reenacting. I think that we, as a culture, have lost touch with a sense of responsibility. And that is reflected in the country at large. As a first-generation American, I think that... America gives you the opportunity to be what you want. And if you want to be the person that wants to engage in peaceful protest, in community organizing, or just make a crap load of money, that's the America that it is. Fourth of July, it makes me feel like, you know what, this country is great, you know? No one in the world wears the flag like we do. Take somebody who's really against burning the flag. The flag isn't the country, but they might get really upset at somebody burning the flag, but they might not get upset so much about like a factory dumping something into a river. So the flag is a symbol of the country. The river is actually the country. So I think we get lost in the symbol versus the thing. I'm for the flag and the, the whole nine yards. I think it's, uh, it's the best place in the world to live, and uh, it's, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I have been denied from a lot of really great schools, regardless of what my grades were and regardless of what my references were, because of the lack of a social number, which has felt like a huge injustice to me. Growing up in a, in a communist country, there's always obstacles. And here in America, we experience that too, but people have an entitlement mentality. They believe that the government is responsible to fix our life. The elected officials are operating on an agenda which has very little care for the citizens of the country. Their conflict is how they can readily raise money. That agenda has very little to do with the welfare of these people. I expect my son to be president. <laughs> I expect him to understand policy and how when you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Even though people try not to be so political all the time, we've come to a era where you, your whole being is a personal statement. Your existence is a personal statement. 
In this country right now, one of the things I see happening is this. People are looking for more socialist type behavior where there's more and more social programs to, to help people to, uh, to more even the playing field out. And while I'm, I'm certainly a believer in helping those in need and in, in, in a helping hand up, you know, there's a point at which that stops being America, that stops saying, hey, we're no longer the land of the free and, the, and, and opportunity the innovation stops and creativity stops because the reward isn't there to balance the risk. I pray for my sons every day because we do live in a society where black men are expendable. So I do keep them in prayer because um, there's no way to know exactly when they're going to run into one of those situations. I beg of them and of my grandchildren to respect the policeman for what who he is and the authority he has. If you've been wronged, we can go back and address it tomorrow. We know there's systemic racism, and we know that this country has an issue with it. But we also look at our heroes, and I look at someone like MLK or Cesar Chavez or Kaepernick and the drama in the NFL or the Dreamers now, and we know that it's just as American to fight against systemic racism and systemic injustice, and we know that fighting against it is just as American as the injustices themselves. My grandfather was persecuted in Russia and was actually killed by the Russians for practicing his religion, practicing Judaism, and actively engaging in others to do so in Moscow in 1947. My father narrowly escaped, and he instilled in me the importance of remembering where we came from and how in the United States we could practice religion freely. These practices, they agree with the governor, then they let it, you do the practice. Otherwise, they you know, abandon or they stop. But in America, it's not like that because you can, you know, practice any religions you want. You know, I went to boot camp and I just never thought I would make it. But when I walked across that line as an enlisted sailor to go out and serve this country and be a part of the process that protects our freedom... Ready Human, Second Class, Glenn Jackson, Navy Achievement Recipient, Roy Wilkins Meritorious Service Recipient, USO C. Haskell Small Recipient. To me, that said, I was an American. The three most important values to me is kindness, love, forgiveness. It's a very basic translation of the word aloha. And that's one of the biggest principles in Hawaiian culture is to be kind. What I don't like in the country is all the, all the computer technology. I really think that'll be our downfall. What I'm scared for, I'm scared for my children for that and for the laziness. I see a lot of laziness with computers and technology and no one, no one can do anything for themselves anymore. There's a disconnect in the country to where I think there's there's a pretty big gap between rural America and urban America, and how you get through that gap is a tough one. I think they're <laughs> figure out how to do that, and we can make America a stronger place. I, for me, I think rural America is still kind of founded on how this country grew up, and so to be able to introduce some of that to to the people in the big cities would be would be nice, and so we could start to see things a little more on common ground, maybe. For me as a Comanche woman, um, and, and I hate to generalize to all indigenous communities, but I think you might find among many indigenous people that a sense of place and connection to the land is very important. When we think about this as our homeland and what is now America, 
uh, is Indigenous Nations, Sovereign Nations Homeland. Um, it is interconnected for us with our cultures, with our languages. I'm able to see the world, or not see the world, but I'm able to hear the world. Being visually impaired, I'm able to hear different voices. I'm around thousands of different people. I get to hear the sounds of going to big cities or small towns. I was standing by my window on a cold and cloudy day. So many different things that, you, that unite us. Having a dream, trying to live out your dream and, and helping the next person with their dream, you know. Helping each other is the, the, the biggest thing. That's how America was built. There are many things that we can look at and identify that's different from someone else. Color, hair texture, size. And ultimately, I think what unites us beyond our differences and beyond anything divisive is that at our core, we want to be happy. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.